0: Well, I have a big treat facing me. Carleen, Brad, and I are leaving after lunch to go to Atlanta. At 6 o'clock, we will attend a dinner in honor of Nancy Eastridge. And in the morning, we'll watch her get her degree. So this is a happy time in the Eastridge family. Today we have a wedding. (coughs) Did you read your Sunday school lesson? (laughs) The bridegroom has come, the church is the bride, and the wedding will take place because the days of tribulation are past, and I'm happy in teaching the class to announce that the days of tribulation have passed. <laughs> John says that the church is the bridegroom of Christ. That analogy is used throughout all the Bible, as you know. And I don't know of a better way to express a bonding of the church in Christ and through marriage because nothing is equal to a beautiful marriage where there is true bonding between husband and wife. As the two come together to be bonded, John says that there is a great crowd who have come to see what is taking place and each one bows down before the altar In gratitude and in praise. And then he describes the church. Those who comprise the church who is the bride of Christ. They're dressed in white linen. Then he goes on to explain that the white linen represents the good deeds that each of the church members has done in their lifetime. Now it's easy to pass over that phrase and go on to other more exciting interpretations of Revelation, but there's nothing in the entire book of Revelation that is more important for our understanding than that one simple phrase, the attire, the robes of those who comprise the bride of Christ is comprised of the good deeds that that person has done because throughout the history of the church from the time of its inception up until the present day there has been a running debate on the role of good deeds good works and finding favor with god throughout the entire old testament after god gave moses the law on sinai The way in which to have a covenant relationship with God is to keep the laws. That's the only way, it's the only prescription for covenant that God gave. I will if you will, and the you will is you will keep my laws. And that's been the big problem of the Old Testament because These laws, after the Pharisees had added many interpretations to them, impossible to keep to such an extent that we would be blameless before God. You know how hard it is, even today, in day-by-day living, to live the perfect life. Too many things intrude into our lives that we don't welcome, that we harbor that we have to get forgiveness for. None of us are perfect. It was impossible for the Old Testament followers of God to be perfect, and they were constantly worshiping other gods, falling away, displeasing God. With Christ, there came a solution to that problem. By his death, through the teachings of Paul, we come to an understanding that it's not what we do that pleases God and brings us into a relationship with him. In fact, we cannot find favor with God through good works. Just like the ancients could not find God's favor through the laws, we, in the New Testament times, cannot find God's favor through works simply because our alienation from God is such, the separation is such, it takes far more than just simply doing good things in order to gain God's favor. So here comes the gift of grace. Through the death of Christ, God gave us grace. Paul says through God's grace, we are justified by faith. We're no longer forced to earn God's favor by the way in which we do good works. We can't gain God's favor through good works. We can gain God's favor through grace. Grace has erased all of the sins that we commit. We cannot make up for sinning against God, but we can have them erased as though they never happened. And that's what grace does. Justification is the erasure of sins. So we find God's reconciliation with us, his acceptance of us, our salvation through the simple word of grace. It erases our sins. God accepts us as though we have never sinned and we are at perfect peace with him. Now, God's continuing grace stays with us after the saving grace so that as we fall backward a step or two, that grace is ready to erase. Just as soon as we repent, God erases it, and we stay in perfect relationship with him. Paul teaches that throughout all his writings. But the church lost sight of it. It wasn't long until the church was back again and trying to please God by the way in which we do things. Good deeds will get God's favor. And finally, by the 16th century, the church was totally built on the fact we have to please God by the way in which we live, by the good deeds that we do. You go to the priest, you confess your sins, He absolves your sins and gives you something to do to make up for the sin that you've committed. I had a friend at the University of Tennessee who was a Roman Catholic student and he took pride in the fact that, and this is not to speak unkindly of the Roman church, I'm speaking unkindly of my friend. Make note of that. He was studying law. Well, anyway, he said, I can do anything I want to during the week because all I have to do is confess it to the priest and he absolves me. And that's all right. I'm all right with God. He believed that and he lived by that. So, there was, a, there was an exit door there on, if you can't do good works, you can always get forgiveness by confessing them and doing something, whatever the priest tells you to do, you do a good deed to make up for the sin that you have committed. Well, that was the way in which the church was structured up until the 16th century, and that bothered Martin Luther. Martin Luther was studying to be a lawyer when he changed over to become a minister, a priest. He knew that he was not worthy to be a priest for God. He struggled with it. He made countless trips to Rome to put himself in the aura of the church. He climbed the steps of St. Peter's on his knees as an act of humility. He beat himself bodily to try to subject his physical nature to his spiritual nature. He went to confession and the priest said, Martin, go do something before you confess. You just make up stuff to come in to confess. (laughs) Martin Luther could not find peace. He was sent to the university to teach so that he may find some peace within himself. And while he was studying at the university, he was reading the letter of Paul to the church at Rome. And like a flash of light, the just shall live by faith alone. The just shall live by faith alone. Nothing else. Eureka, he said, that's it and the Reformation came into being, and all Protestant theology is based upon that one thing, that we are justified by faith, not works. There are still some who think that you have to please God through works in order to be saved. No, it is an erasure of our sins that we're saved. But there's a catch. When you're saved, you change. It's a new life. You're born again. Now you want to please God. You don't do good deeds in order to be saved. You do good deeds in order to please the one who has saved you. Therefore, it is expected that once we are saved through grace then we are about God's work, fulfilling the commandments of Jesus. You ought to be able to tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian by the priorities that they have in their lives. So, John says that at the time that Christ is bonded with his church in heaven, we stand before Christ with the good deeds that we have done. Boy, I hope I have on a white robe. I hope mine's full of good deeds. That is the judgment of the Christian. He stands before God with his deeds by which he is judged. Not for salvation, but as a mark of reverence for God. One of my favorite stories has to do with Thomas. Thomas has a bad press because he wasn't there when Jesus appeared, and everybody thought he ought to believe the way everybody else did. But if you're at a distance, you're a little prone to disbelieve what others say about the appearance of Jesus. Once he saw Jesus, he believed. In one sense, he has the greatest faith of any of the disciples because he was the only one of the disciples who said let us go to Jerusalem and be crucified with Jesus if he indeed is to be crucified. After the Pentecost, after the day of Pentecost each of the disciples went to a different part of the world. Paul went into Asia. Peter went to Rome john went to ephesus later to rome and then uh back to ephesus where he ended his life james the brother of our lord who was a later disciple was thrown from the temple and killed the other james was also killed in jerusalem each one suffered a martyr's death after they had gone out to spread the gospel to various places Luke went to Greece. Matthew went to Egypt. Thomas went to India. According to tradition, Thomas didn't want to go to India. And when he got the call from the Holy Spirit to go to India, he demurred. Then The brother to the ruler of India came to Jerusalem to find carpenters who could build a palace for his brother. India was far back in time more than uh, Jerusalem and its environs. They did not have the skills that the Jewish nation had. The Jews were famed for their carpentry skills. Our Lord was a carpenter. He came to find someone to build a magnificent palace for the ruler of India. The Holy Spirit spoke to the brother of the ruler and said, one of the finest carpenters is Thomas, recruit him. He came to Thomas, told Thomas what was needed, how he wanted him to come to India and build a magnificent palace for the ruler. Having had told, been told with the Holy Spirit to go, with the affirmation of this one person coming, then reluctantly, but willingly, Thomas went to India. There he established the church and he became the patron saint of India. But when he got to India, he met with the ruler and the ruler gave him a blueprint of the magnificent palace that he wanted to be built. He said, my treasury is sufficient for any need that you might have, you build the palace, cost is not a factor. Showed Thomas where he wanted it to be built. Thomas went to the treasury, got what he needed. And on his way back, he found people who were dying of starvation, people living in poverty. And by the time he got back, he didn't have any money left. So he went back to the treasury, got more. The same story was unfolded until he had taken everything that would have built the palace and given it away to help the people who had nothing. One day the brother came to see how progress was being made and he found nothing had been done. He came to Thomas and he said, what's the meaning of this? And Thomas told him what he had done. And the brother had a stroke right there. and went to heaven. When he got to heaven, he was being ushered through heaven and shown the different places that had been prepared for different people. On his way, he came upon a magnificent building. He said, who in the world is going to live there? And St. Peter said, your brother. My brother? Yes. Thomas sent up all the raw materials to build it. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. So if John is correct, when we get to heaven, God's going to know what we did after he gave us an entry into heaven because of grace. So John says that when Jesus and the church came together, that those in the church were arrayed in the white robes, which indicated the good works that they had done. Michael Lester just kept bouncing off of that this morning in his sermon. You were there. I thought, I wish I could just wedge that in because he had some magnificent viewpoints on this fact of our relationship with God. The next observation made by John is that there is a new heaven and a new earth. The old has passed away. Someone asked me after the first session, and that person isn't here now, so I can say it without embarrassing him. No reason it would embarrass him, but I don't like to single out people who have confided with me on something. But he said to me, I have heard it said many times that heaven will be on earth, that the world will be made to accommodate heaven. And I hear that too. Many denominations believe that. And I said to this person, the only thing wrong with that is someday the sun's going to burn out. And I don't know what we're going to have eternal on earth if the sun's gone, because that was being flippant with him, but went on to say that Maybe it is on earth, I don't know. Nobody knows where heaven is going to be. But the fact is this, John said that God said, I have made a new heaven and a new earth. Someone suggested that the new earth is what God meant for the earth to be before sin came into it. And I can see that. That would be a good solution because it was perfect from the beginning. When God created the world and created humanity, it was perfect. God said, it's good. God said, it's good. Day by day, God said, it's good. It was good. He liked it. Sin came in and corrupted it. So if there's going to be a new earth, I can't think of anything better than just starting in over again because sin has been vanquished now, according to John. There's no more sin. And so then very easily heaven could be the very continuation of what was begun at Eden. But here's the point of interest in this statement. God said, I will come down and live, reside with men. We talk about going up to heaven to be with God. He said, I will come down and live with men. One of the most beautiful expressions in the Old Testament says that at the cool of the evening out in Eden, and we can just imagine how resplendent it is because we're accustomed to the great smoky mountains and the beauty of sunset and the cool air of evening. God came down and walked with Adam and Eve. Can't you imagine walking in Eden with God? I will come down and live with men. He will not be Coming up to where I am, I'll be coming down to where you are. This is where Michael bounced off my lesson this morning because he assured us that God is already here with us, and indeed He is in spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's presence with us, but these are two entities, God and the Holy Spirit. Then it will be God and not his Holy Spirit who will be in communication with us when we have been brought into heaven. I was in seminary with a young fellow who's no longer old, no longer young, he's old now because he was in seminary with me. Well, I shouldn't have said that. I I implied something I didn't mean to imply. (laughs) He was far older than I in seminary. (laughs) He was a poet. He wrote two or three books of poetry that were published by Abingdon and Cokesbury Press. They were not great poems, but they were the kind that are pleasing to read and give you a good feeling. He told about John. He said, John worked in a mill in a small town. He was uneducated, but had skills. A happy man, lived in a humble house, but had everything that he needed. Every day, he went to work at 5 o'clock in the morning at the mill. But on his way, he passed his church. And he would go into the church, and he would sit on the back pew, and for 30 minutes, he would sit there and talk to God. He would pray and listen he always began by saying god it's john that went on for years john grew old infirm he had to quit work he could no longer leave his home finally he became bedfast. and one of the things that he missed most of all was the 30 minutes he spent with god and somehow he couldn't feel the same And then one morning, while he was feeling lonely and alone, it was 5 o'clock in the morning, and he heard a voice say, John, it's God. Of course, it's the fantasy of a poem, but it says God is with us here. We don't have to wait till sometime in the future to have communion with God. But then it will be in a total fellowship, in a physical way in as much as there will be a physical afterlife. Boy, you wouldn't know that came out of Revelation, would you? See what you can do to manipulate, to get away from those things you don't want to talk about? You might have a question on something that I haven't talked about, so ask a question or make some observation. Fancy, uh the belief and grace. Of God gets us into heaven. Right. Somewhere written or somebody said that our good deeds are what determine our position in heaven. Apparently, we're gonna all have jobs. Now, some of us will be cleaning the bathroom and some of us will be cooking cakes, I guess. But uh, is there anything to that? Well, in my thinking, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> because heaven is perfect. If you have a cash system in heaven, you don't have perfection. Everyone is the same before God, regardless of what we might have done on earth. But the Indian ruler got to live in the palace. (laughs) Well, you can live in a palace. (laughs) Oh, I got sweat in my eyes, burning. Uh, It's hard to believe that there would not be some way to reward. You know, that the old song that I can remember out of my childhood. Will there be any stars, any stars in my crown when the evening sun goes down? We have stars in our crown of the good deeds that we do. Yes, I think we'll be recognized. We'll be judged on that. But as far as there being a caste system, I don't think there is a caste system. But only the grace of God will erase our sins. We can't. Find God's favor by doing good deeds. I did bad, and I'm going to do something. and You forget that I did something bad. It's erased, and that's the good news. Well, do you believe that the 12 tribes, the leaders of the 12 tribes, are going to be the leaders in heaven and all John thought so, but John was a Jew. This was his heritage. This was his tradition. I don't think that there'll be a distinction between Jews and Gentiles because God's not a Jew. Jesus was a Jew by his mother, but God is the father of everybody and he loves everybody the same. And he would not make one group superior to another, although they have always felt superior because they were sons of Abraham. But uh, John is talking within the concept of the people that he's writing to. You see, they're not one generation away from their Jewish heritage. And the 12 tribes of Israel is what God, who God worked with prior to the coming of Jesus and through Paul opening the door to the Gentile world. I think heaven's perfect, and I can't see any imperfection allowed into heaven. And if I'm cleaning the bathroom and you're playing golf, I'm not going to be happy. You know, you know, there is one major denomination that believes in are three levels of heaven. That's right. Yeah, and, and you achieve whatever level you're in based upon your works in life. That's right. Which, when they were trying to talk to me, was a, one thing that I couldn't crack. I couldn't mm-hmm. get past that. And this time I won't name it like I did last okay. week. That's good. Uh, uh, any other comments or questions? You said he's over here. Thank you.